Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Geraldo Cadava, and this is Writing Latinos, a new podcast from Public Books. Latino scholars, memoirists, novelists, journalists, and others have used the written word as their medium for making a statement about Latinidad. We'll talk to some of them about how their writing illuminates the Latino experience. Some of our episodes will be nerdy and academic, while others will be playful and lighthearted. All will offer thoughtful reflections on Latino identity and how writing conveys some of its meanings. We'll publish a new episode every two weeks. And if you like what you hear, like and subscribe to Writing Latinos wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the show. I am delighted to talk today with Lorgia Garcia Peña, professor at Tufts University in the Department of Studies in Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora. Professor Garcia Peña is the author of three books. The first is The Borders of Dominicanidad, Race, Nation, and Archives of Contradiction, and then two published in 2022. I mean, it's amazing. What a year you had last year. The first is Community as Rebellion, a syllabus for surviving academia as a woman of color, published by Haymarket Books. And the second is Translating Blackness, Latinx Colonialities in Global Perspective, published by Duke University Press. Thank you so much for joining me, Lorja. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me. It's truly a pleasure. And Lorgia, why don't we start actually with your appointment at Princeton, where you'll be both in the Department of African American Studies and the Efron Center for Studies of America. What kind of opportunities do you think being in in this new kind of institutional arrangement will allow you? How might it shape your research over the next few years? So I am an, an interdisciplinary scholar, and all of my work and all of my teaching moves between and back and forth and in by band multiple fields. I'm curious and I'm also excited to see the conversations that, that come out of different disciplines. I I am hopeful also for these conversations. I think we need to have more work that kind of breaks the discipline disciplinary barriers because for a lot of the questions that many of us are pursuing, it's hard to do so from one from one discipline. So I think that within Black studies generally and African American studies more specifically, the book has potential to expand and add to to an expansive conversation about global Blackness. So I'm really excited to see uh, what colleagues and people from Black studies think of it and how they um, add to it, how they critique it, and what how can I grow for the next book <laughs> from those critiques. Translating Blackness is a terrific and important work of scholarship. I mean, I think more than many things that I've read, it 
really tries to wrestle with the meanings of Latinidad and Blackness together and really expands the frame far beyond the United States to include places like Italy. So I really can't recommend it enough to anyone who might be listening to this. And in the book, there are a few key concepts that I think it would be helpful for anyone listening to understand. And I'll name three of them. One is translation. Another is hegemonic blackness. And a third is contradiction with diction italicized. So I'll I'll start from the end. <laughs> and contradiction is a term that I use in my first book in in the borders of Dominicanidad um, to think about the ways in which dictions, literary works, performative works, narrative, even texts are appear in archives and in textbooks and are sanctioned at times by the state. And what I propose in the first book is to read in contra diction against against those sort of normative um, hegemonic versions of truth. And so when I was grappling with this book, which you know took me a good nine years to write, I was trying to think together about blackness, Latinidad, in, in a context of a world in which we tend to separate the struggles for immigrant lives from the struggles for black lives. And I wanted to hold those two experiences together and think deeply, not only about the people who identified as black Latinx and the sites and locations in, that we tend to imagine on sites of Black Latinidad, but also their epistemologies, the ways in which these terms and ideas have come, come to exist from the 19th century to the present. And so it was, it was a lot. It was, it was one question, but it was expensive. And so when I was thinking about this, this work, I had the, the fortune of, of having um, friends and colleagues read various versions of, of the manuscripts. And I was in conversation with George Lipsitz at some point, and he mentioned, you know, I don't understand why you're not bringing back contradiction <laughs> into this work. You know, this is a very useful concept. You introduced it in your previous book, and it's just helpful for the work that you're doing here. And it was it was really it was a really like an aha moment, you know, really early. I'm talking, you know, six, six years ago or so that helped me really piece together some of some of the ideas that I have in, in translating blackness. And a lot of times I describe translating blackness as a sequel to the borders of Dominicanidad in great part, because as I was beginning to do research for translating blackness, I was also doing footnotes and conclusion and light editing for the borders of Dominicanidad and at some point it's like one book started to bleed into the other and I was like it's time to stop it's time to move to <laughs> to move on but but the questions that animated the first book definitely influenced how I approach my research particularly in, in, in Italy and specifically around citizenship and, and undocumented communities. So, so there are multiple concepts that I that I bring into into how I think about about blackness in this book. One of them is Vaiven, which you haven't mentioned, but it's a really important one. And in fact, it's something that I originally had in the title of the book, and you know, as editors do, 
that one that was called I guess it was too long <laughs> of a of a title but it, it really helps me think about the the comings and goings of of the experiences of blackness and um the the premise of the book is how do we think together about colonialism migration and blackness in this moment and how do we uh, engage with with the ways in which the nation and the world are reproducing multiple and new forms of exclusion and anti-blackness and for me centering it on black latinidad is critical because it help black latinidad help us see coloniality through blackness it really does when you think about the experiences of people who identify themselves as black latinx they are for the most part migrants or descendants of migrants but they also have the they carry with them multiple forms of colonialisms right you, you're looking at the history and the legacies of european colonialism in latin america but you're also looking at u.s colonialism and then confronting all of that with for example, in places like the United States with internal forms of coloniality. So thinking thinking about the ways in which colonialism, migration, and, and anti-blackness intersect in this moment, there is no better place to do that than from the from the experience and the and the epistemologies of, of Black Latinidad. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about hegemonic blackness ah, and what you hegemon. mean by that. So what I mean about hegemonic blackness is the ways in which there is one dominant way in which we, meaning the world, understands black experiences, black struggles, and black histories. And for the most part, that experience is mediated by the United States, by Anglophone, um, literature and cultural production. So if you go anywhere in the world and you and you look for images of black success, you're going to be people are going to be thinking about Obama or maybe Oprah. <laughs> and so what what does that mean for the global south and for black people from the global south? This to me is is, is sort of key and and critical to the work I'm trying to do in this book, but it's also the hardest thing to grapple with because it requires scholars in the US to understand that two things can be true, that you can be as a black person experiencing the cost of anti-blackness every day and dealing with facts like the police may kill you. And that's very true and very tangible. And at the same time, you can be an agent of empire in the way in which you move in the world or just by virtue of carrying an American passport. And so I am asking questions that are difficult to grapple with um, and that require us to sort of get out of our comfort zone and understand that in order to truly do transnational conversations well, we need to understand that there are hierarchies and there are power dynamics that influence even the way academic work gets deployed in the world. And so what does it mean for people in, let's say, Latin America to talk about anti-Blackness by using the hashtag Black Lives Matter? It means multiple things, right? It, it, gives, it gives them a, a platform from which, from which to speak to a larger audience and put things into context for the world, but at the same time, it can create erasure. And so I'm interested in bringing attention to this tension and this dynamics and figure out a better way forward.
Let's uh, linger on that point about duality for just a minute through the figure of Frederick Douglass, who I think you use to great effect in the book as someone who has, uh, as you put it just now, has been a kind of victim of anti-Blackness in his daily life, but for a period in the 1870s was also an agent of the American empire when he was helping the United States explore the possibility of annexing the Dominican Republic. What does it mean to take this person that we're so familiar with and to understand him in this other context? I think it, it, it brings attention to the complexities of being a minoritized person and eventually a minoritized citizen of an empire in relationship to the world. And, you know, Reconstruction is a really important moment for for how Black Americans are thinking about themselves in relationship to the world. It's a moment in which the promise of colorblind citizenship is entertained. And we had not yet seen the heartbreak of this promise not being fulfilled. And so when Frederick Douglass goes to the Dominican Republic as an arm of the U.S. empire and walks around the Bay of Samana and meets with folks and, and creates his opinion about Dominicans, two things are happening. He's seeing this place as a potential site for black humanity. And he's looking at race um, and racial and race relationships in the Dominican Republic as operating differently than in the United States, less hierarchical from his from his eyes, right? It's a moment where there is a mulatto president, right? There's a mixed race, uh, light-skinned black president at the moment, which in the U.S. context was an impossibility in 1865. So he's seeing this, and his his mind is racing, and he's going, okay, well, if we make this a state then we guarantee two things. We guarantee that this, that this country progresses and we also allowed for these people to have uh, American citizenship, which is powerful in the world. And what would that, that mean for voting power? You know, so he's, he's thinking about black citizenship, but in the process of thinking about black citizenship and thinking of himself as a carrier of U.S. citizenship for the first time, he's also invested in this project of expansion for the first time. And this is the same Douglas that 10 years before is saying not to expansion, right? Not to imperialism, because imperialism means at this moment in the, in the 1850s, it means enslaving more people. So in in a post sort of 1865 moment, he's, he's full of hope and he's thinking that this might work. Now, he sees that it doesn't later on. And that's why he uh, defends Cuba from annexation and he defends Haiti from annexation. But in this brief moment, his work and his words in relationship to Latinidad had an impact on how um, the politics of of Latinidad versus North Americanness shape how um, Black, specifically Black Americans, relate to Latin America. And what we see post 
uh, Frederick Douglass and, and my colleague Atovs, Kerry Granich, just published this amazing uh, book on the Green Keys. What we see is, is this wave of African-American men, for the most part, who are powerful, who are linked to the state, um, serving as um, ambassadors and also extracting heavily from, from the local resources and acting very much following the same structures of American empire. So it's complicated and convoluted and hard to, to digest, but it's also human. And, uh, and I think it would, it would really help us to think through Douglas and Douglas's contradictions in relationship to blackness and Latinidad. It would, it would really serve us to look at it um, as an example of how we got to where we are right now. But also in relationship to projects like diversity and inclusion, because to me, the way in which he was sent to the Dominican Republic, he's the only black man in this commission that is sent, right? So there is also this way of producing um, blackness that really resonates with the kinds of projects we see in the 70s and 80s that lead to the mess that is diversity and inclusion at the moment. So it's it's a project of tokenization that does not um, lead to actual political uh, enfranchisement for black people. So I couldn't help but thinking about the 1619 project, which Nicole Hannah-Jones opens up with this description of a tattered American flag hanging in front of her childhood home. And that was about how her veteran father still believed in this project of democracy, American promise and inclusion within the United States. But a lot of your actors aren't really arguing for inclusion within a particular nation state, but instead are fighting for recognition and equality and freedom for Black people all around the world. Yeah, I think one of the examples of, of a middle ground for that would be Arthur Schomburg, who I write about in the second chapter. I would argue that for uh, for Schomburg, it's it's a both-and um, situation, right? We we want to assert our, our, our access to citizenship, and we also want belonging. We also want to be part of a nation without a nation. Um, and I find his, his moment um, to be really critical for, for both critiquing the nation, but also understanding that it is impossible to escape it. In a previous moment with, with Douglas and Gluperon, who are operating in the 19th century, this is the height of nationalism, right? This is the moment in which a lot of a lot of nations are being built. You know, the Italian nation is being born. Uh, nations all over Central America are being created. So the the nation becomes the ideal to 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 strive to. Um, it the idea that um, humanity could be represented fully by a state. Um, and and so if you are someone who have been fighting for that inclusion, whether um, you are like Luperon, you are a military man and and someone who's been um, linked to 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 the independence movement, uh, you 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 want to insist on this possibility of the nation as the site of freedom, the site of inclusion, that which will allow you to fully be. But when it comes to the United States nation, it's tricky because it's a nation that was created at a time in which slavery 
was legal, right? And so you have, what you have really is not a, a, a true independence and project of citizenship for all, as you see in other countries. What you see in the United States is, is a change of, um, of masters from the British to the sons of the British, right? And so it, there is really very little change. And so the, I think the contradiction is more stark for minoritized and indigenous and black people, especially in the United States, to be able to buy into a nation that did not ever um, not only include them, but even sell them as full as full human beings. And I think there is a there is a moment that sort of extends to the 20th century of believing in the nation and buying into patriotism and buying into the idea of the constitution that never really was intended for for people like us, but thinking that perhaps now it can be. I think that there there is a desire, and then there is also, in many ways, a hesitancy to see uh, the possibility that the nation is a failed project, that it will never actually include us. Because if we think about that in those terms, then what else is left? How do we, how do we conceive of, our, of ourselves vis-a-vis other people? And I think that that's something that, that a lot of uh, folks are grappling with at the end of the 20th century, especially. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Arturo Schomburg because he changed his name from Arturo to Arthur. And I think many people have read the name change as a sign of how he had come to cast his lot with the African-American community in New York and perhaps the United States more broadly. But I think what you're showing about him is that it's much more complicated than that. He's also the namesake, of course, of the most famous library and archives for African-American history and culture. But as you describe it in your chapter about Arturo Schomburg, he was creating an archive of global blackness as well, not just African-American New York. So I think he, in addition to to Douglas, those are both two good examples of kind of entirely reframing our understanding of these individuals. Yeah, I mean, Arthur changed his name from Arturo to Arthur. And then eventually, as we see from, uh, from Francis Negro Montaner's work now, back to Arturo. To me, this is a reflection precisely of one of the many multiple experiences of Latinidad. How, how to pronounce your name in a new context, how to live, um, how to live in multiple uh, linguistic codes. Imagine being Black and Boricua at the turn of the 20th century in New York, when there were no names for who you are, and also being an immigrant, and also being from an island that now belongs to the United States. So there are all these multiple layers of belonging and unbelonging that he had to he had to navigate to be seen and to move in the world. And the, the spaces that were opened for him to allow him to do the work that he wanted to do in the world Many of them, I mean, were in Harlem, which was a neighborhood that was booming with amazing work through precisely by African-Americans and Black um, Caribbean people at the time. And so it really, um, it really isn't a sign of he's switching sides or going, no, it is a vibrant. It is the Vaivain that Latinx people, particularly those of us who are immigrants or descendants of immigrants, go through in our lifetime, right? We, we, we change 
how we pronounce our names or how we engage with certain topics and that is that is how we move in the world because that is how our experiences are are developed and shaped by what's around us in your book women are central as both survivors of ongoing colonial violence and organizers and even soldiers developing strategies of resistance against it so can you talk about how a politics of gender sits at the core of the story you tell the women that i write about are powerful um they're duras you know I began to write this book thinking I was going to write a book about Black Dominicana's migration to Italy. And so from the the inception of this book, it was always about women. From the beginning of the book and to uh, to the end, I am looking for Black Latinas. I am trying to see them in archives that purposely silence them. So in the beginning of the book, in the first chapter, as I am, I'm, I, as I engage Gregorio Luperon and Freddie Douglas, I do so because I wanted to find Gregoria Fraser Goins, who was their goddaughter. And it's one of the, the stories that is most um, dear to me in the book. It's really just a beautiful, beautiful story. And... Um, and throughout throughout the book, I, I I want to think about the ways in which Black Latinas defy the defy colonial violence, defy the afterlives of slavery, defy the atrocities of migration, and somehow find ways of belonging, of being, and of creating and co-creating communities of joy that really fight back against the nation state. So the second part of the book in particular centers around uh, women um, beginning with 1965 and sort of ending in this moment and looking at at activism and looking at literary works and and looking at the ways in which um, bodies of black women have been used by colonial powers to um enact violence um and how those those acts of violence reappear in this present moment um so I'm, I'm sort of trying in many ways to conjure that violence to um to to make us see it but also to make us see the totality of black latinas lives in the present how that violence is often contrasted by uh, acts of resistance. Writing Latinos is brought to you by Public Books, an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can find us at publicbooks.org. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-B-O-O-K-S dot org. To donate to Public Books, visit publicbooks.org backslash donate. I have a, just a few more questions about Latino identity. There are just a lot of conversations in the air right now about Latina, Latino, Latinx, Latine identity, and all of the debates about it. And I have been thinking a lot lately about mestizaje, as many others have as well. And instead of mestizaje, one of your characters, Gregorio Luperon, used the term raza mixta. 
And Luperon, by the way, was the president of the Dominican Republic for a brief period in the late 19th century. But he had this term raza mixta. And I wanted to ask you how this term relates to the concept of mestizaje and how it might even address some of mestizaje's shortcomings. I mean, Gregorio Luperon is, is writing in the middle of the 19th century, and he wasn't a formed as a scholar. He was formed as a military man. Um, and he was uh, the son of a um, Haitian uh, woman and a Dominican of probably um, European ancestry man. And so he himself grappled with the multiple racial and ethnic identities that made made who he was. And I think in many in many ways he was very invested in citizenship precisely because this is a moment, and we see it a little later in Cuba, this is a moment in which citizenship is replacing race in the Caribbean, right? Um, at least in the way in which, you know, Caribbean uh, um, identities, Hispanic Caribbean identities specifically are being deployed. So his concept of mixed race, and he uses the, the terms uh, raza mista, is, is, is quite different from Mestizaje in that it begins and ends with blackness and with black freedom. So that at the core of this identity that he calls for is this idea that we are a mix of multi of multiple races, and but all of these multiple races can only come to fruition because of the liberating work of Black people. Um, he's also one of the first people to use the term Latino for the first time, and to think about Latinidad as a political project unifying Latin American countries against U.S. empire. And we're talking, you know, 1867. So this is really, really early. And I find him really interested in the way in which he allows us to think about Latinidad before, before um, the narrative of mestizaje that became sort of sanctioned by the Mexican state in the 20th century uh, come to become hegemonic. And you know what I what I tell my students when we talk about this, and I teach a seminar on on Black Latinidad that I enjoy and love, is I am I am all for canceling whatever you, you want to cancel. <laughs> if you want to name us oranges, I'll take it, you know. Um, but I also um, would like those critiques to come after we have enough historical perspective. Because I think if we understood that first came Blackness and then Latinidad, and that this term Latinidad was created as an anti-colonial term that grounded, that was grounded on Black liberation, if we knew that, if we knew Duplupéron's work, if we knew Betance's work, perhaps we would not be calling for the cancellation of the term, but rather reminding people that Blackness has always been central to Latinidad. And so my, my impulse in this moment and in this dialogue is to, to insist that we, we get enough historical perspective. And then if you still want to cancel, go ahead, <laughs> you know, um, sign me up. Uh, but let's do so not because of the moment that we find ourselves in and the ways in which some people have co-opted the term and changed it, but let's, let's do it because we um, 
really are aware of of the totality of that history. And I don't think we are because Latinx studies until very recently has not centered blackness, still doesn't center it. There are more dialogues, but we, we have failed as a field to understand the significance of blackness and anti-blackness in Latinidad. And I think the question should be, how do we, how do we, how do we fix this? I was thinking too, back to your book about your discussions of Afro-indigeneity or black indigeneity, and that seems to also complicate a simple distinction between white Latinos and black Latinos. So really the question is just what are your thoughts about this discourse about white Latinos and black Latinos? I mean, what I think, and this is, you know, what I also teach my students is that Latinx and Latinidad is not a race. It's not a race. It's it's other things, you know. It could be uh, an ethnic identity. It could be a cultural identity. It could be a political identity. But it's not a race. I resist when I when I hear the phrase "black and Latino." It's another way of of saying that we are not both. Um, that you are either or, and that's simply just not true. Um, so so for me. Again, this these conversations need to be complicated more. It's not that simple as black and white or black or white. Uh, it's are are we um, do we have commonalities because of histories of colonialism, because of language, because of histories of migration? We do, uh, but how do we how do we disentangle those commonalities from the fact that not every Latinx experience is the same? that being an indigenous person um, who identifies as Latinx is not the same experience as being a white Argentine living in the United States, that those experiences are not the same. And yet, there are are moments of encounter, uh, which is why so many of us continue to embrace the term, continue to to name ourselves uh, Latina, Latino, Latinx. So, so I think, yeah, the, the invitation should be how do we complicate this conversation um, beyond uh, a binary that honestly isn't useful uh, for thinking about Latinidad. Finally, I have to ask because there was banter on Twitter about this a while ago and <laughs> you and I, yeah, I know, let's go to Twitter to like tell us what kinds I, of Are you asking me about having. Flan? Because yeah, apparently was... my most controversial tweet <laughs> was about Flan. So. <laughs> no, although I did have fun <laughs> two nights ago. That's not what I was going to ask you. I'm teaching this graduate seminar on Latinx historiography, and we read Laura Gomez's book, Inventing Latinos, where she states very clearly that Latino only makes sense in a U.S. domestic context, and it doesn't make sense to use it other otherwise. I read that knowing that we were going to be reading your book later on in the quarter and remembering conversations we've had about how you were doing research in Italy. I was thinking, man, I have to ask Lorgia about this because I I would imagine she has something to say. So I'll just ask, tell me your thoughts about whether Latino exists or only makes sense in a U.S. domestic context or whether it can extend, say, to Latinos in other places like Italy. You know, when we think about things like, you know, uh, popular phrases like race is a social construct, which we have been hearing for like, I don't know, since I was in college, I would agree that the term Latinx, Latino, Latina, or Hispanic, um, as we know it today and as it's as it's being deployed, is is a product of the United States. 
I will I would agree with that. Um, both in terms of U.S. imperialism, which is what I talk about in the first chapter of the book, but also in terms of the populations in the United States of people who trace their ancestry to Latin America and who are either born here or came here as young people and named themselves that. And so I would concede that that's important and, and that we need to understand that history. I would also insist that in this historical moment in 2023, we are in a, in, a, in a moment that is radically different from 1965. Um, and that Latinidad has traveled and that there are communities outside of the United States that are naming themselves Latinos. And I am not, I, Lorja, I'm not going to go and tell them that they are not because that is not my job. My job is, as a researcher and as a scholar, is to listen and take seriously what people are telling me that they're naming themselves. Otherwise, what I, that project of, of, of sort of telling people how to, how to be or how to name or, or, what, to, or what to feel in, in relationship to race and ethnicity becomes uh, colonizing, and I don't wanna do that. What I have seen, and this is what I can share, is that newer enclaves of Latinx identities are forming in other global North countries, places like Spain, places like Sweden, places like Italy that I write about. And that those people who are born there and their parents are from Latin America are looking at New York and LA to come up with a language with which to talk back to the nation. To me, that's Latinidad. So the, the short answer is for me, in this moment, and again, we need to be very specific about historical moments and situations. This is not 1965. If you asked me that question back then, I might have had a different answer. But in this political moment, um, and in this moment uh, in which migration, Latin American migration has been diversifying from being almost the majority of migrants coming to the United States to having now sort of a multi-pronged approach to migration that has been going on for a good 50 years. Um, in this moment, Latinidad to me applies to the experiences, histories, identities of communities of people who trace their ancestry to Latin America and live in the global north and consider themselves in the global north minoritized communities in relationship to Latin America and the nation they live in. I cannot resist one small follow-up. Are there consequences for those who insist that Latino is a domestic concept and want to keep it that way, are there consequences for letting others in to that conversation? You know, I'm not a big fan of borders and both in terms of national borders and in terms of bordering people's identities and and, and bordering people's ways of thinking and engaging. I think we lose a lot. Um, in that process. I understand as a Latinx studies scholar that there is a history and a history that I am very careful to teach my students and to understand of Latin American studies and Latinx studies um, being in tension. 
uh, in a lot of our institutions because of a tendency of Latin American scholars to wake up one day and say, oh, I do Latinx studies. So I want to clarify that this is not what I'm calling for or what I'm defending. I am talking about taking seriously the way in which communities are calling themselves. And so who am I to go to a community of women who are organizing themselves as Latinx women in Sweden and say to them, actually, you shouldn't be using that term because you're not from the United States. I think there is room to understand that um, identities are plural and that the, the lived experience of Latinx people in the United States is going to be different than the lived experience of Latinx people in Sweden. I think that that is fair to say, just like we say that about other experiences. That is true. But what is also true is that there is a reason why they are naming themselves Latinx. And that reason has to do with the shared experiences of feeling and being excluded from the nation that they are born into and also from the nation their parents come from. And I think that's what we share. And I, I would... I would be a, I would be sad to miss the opportunity to have those conversations across because I think Latinx studies can grow tremendously from having these conversations. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate the care and thought you gave to the questions. Thank you so much. And everybody go read Translating Blackness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Writing Latinos. We'd love to hear your suggestions for new books that we should be reading and talking about. Drop us a line at heraldo at publicbooks.org. That's G-E-R-A-L-D-O at publicbooks.org. This episode is brought to you by Public Books. It was produced and edited by Tasha Sandoval. Our music is City of Mirrors by the Chicago-based band Dos Santos. I'm Gerardo Cadava. We'll see you again next time. 